Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, and welcome to today's program, hosted by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley and by Wonderfest, the Bay Area Beacon of Science. My name is Tucker Hyatt. It is my pleasure to introduce Sean Carroll, theoretical physicist and author of Something Deeply Hidden, Quantum Worlds and the Emergence of Space-Time. Dr. Carroll is professor of physics at the California Institute of Technology and host of the weekly podcast Mindscape. Sean received his Ph.D. from Harvard University in 1993. His research has focused on dark matter, dark energy, space-time symmetries, and the origin of the universe. Professor Carroll has been recognized with fellowships and prizes from the National Science Foundation, NASA, the American Institute of Physics, and the Royal Society of London, to name just a few. Moderating this afternoon's program is Kishore Hari, host of the Inquiring Minds podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Sean Carroll and Kishore Hari. Sean, thank you so much for being here. I'll I'll be honest, when I read through the book, um, and when I usually do this, I I make questions as I go along. Uh, My questions when I was reading your book were less questions and more sounds that had question marks at the end of them, (laughs) like, huh, what? and I've transformed that into questions, but Excellent. I just want you to understand what the core under, underneath it is. Uh, but it actually underlies what you tried to do here, which I think you did so masterfully, which is before we get all the mind-bendy stuff that we're going to get to, you said one of the key missions of this book and, and messages you want to walk away with is quantum mechanics should be understandable. Yeah. Yes, it should be. Good. <laughs> I mean, quantum mechanics, what, I start off the book by, I literally went to Amazon.com and typed the word quantum into the search bar, right? Because I just wanted to see what kinds of books had quantum in their title, and it was worse than I thought. You know, there was quantum yoga, quantum leadership, quantum love, quantum therapy, uh, which tells us something about how the idea of quantum mechanics is perceived widely, right? Namely, that you can, it can be whatever the hell you want, right? It could, there's no real notion that it's a physical theory with equations that actually has rules of the game. And part of the blame for that lies with physicists, because we kind of treat quantum mechanics as mysterious and ineffable and beyond our real ability to understand to the extent that the idea of trying hard to understand it is is disparaged within the physics community. What do you mean it's disparaged? Well, I mean that there is this whole field called quantum foundations, right? So quantum mechanics, just very, very quickly, you know, it's a theory that is important when you go to the microscopic realm, when you talk about electrons and protons and atoms. And the main point that makes the theory hard is that if you look up the rules of quantum mechanics in a physics textbook, there's one set of rules which say what an electron, let's say, does when you're not looking at it, and then a whole other set of rules saying what an electron does when you are looking at it, okay? And this is called the Copenhagen interpretation. When you're not looking at it, it's a wave. It's sort of spread out. It obeys an equation given to us by Schrodinger. When you do look at it, it snaps into place. It's in one location. It looks like a particle, okay? Now, this is clearly nonsense, 
as a fundamental theory of nature. I mean, what do you mean look at it? Do you just need to be a human being? You know, would a, would a bird looking at it count? What about a robot? What if I kind of glance at it just slightly? Does that change the way it functions dramatically? And the answers are that you're not allowed to ask these questions. If you try to ask these questions, you're kicked out of the field. I love that the highest level of physics is grappling with the question of if a tree falls in a forest, doesn't make a sound on a fundamental level. Um, so let's lean into this, this observation question you just brought up. Uh, if the world, especially at the smallest level, we describe it through quantum mechanics, and it's so elegant in, in its ability to describe that world, why do we talk about the world in this classical way? Why does the world look classical at all? If yeah, we well, have that's, quantum mechanics at the smallest level. That's a hard question. You're not supposed to ask hard questions this easy, oh, this I'm early. You're <laughs> supposed to work our way up to that. <laughs> uh, I mean, people don't really know why the world looks classical uh, at a fundamental level. It might be... Well, let me back up just a, just a little bit. Classical mechanics says that, you know, there are, there's stuff, right? There's chairs and tables and people and planets. And the stuff has locations. It's located somewhere in space and velocities. It's moving. And then Newton's laws tell you exactly what will happen based on those things. And you can measure everything perfectly. And then quantum mechanics is this very different thing where there's fuzzy waves and there's a probability of getting different uh, observations and so forth. So... Physicists, you know, like anyone else, we grow up with classical intuition. We think that there really is a table here with a location and a velocity. Like, bless our hearts, right? This is how we think. And quantum mechanics says, no, no, it's really a wave function, and you interact it with it in subtle ways. Um, so, there are, so one of the problems, because we don't understand quantum mechanics very well, is that when you say, well, is this wave function, is this way that we describe a quantum system, an electron, is that a direct representation of reality, or is it just you know, a shorthand for making predictions? Or is it part of reality, but then there's other parts also? Uh, we have no idea, I mean, in the, in the sense that the physics community does not have a consensus on the answers to these questions. So when we ask things like, what happens when you make a measurement... Uh, we don't have a consistent answer. And the, the, the question you ask about the classical world, it, it's the answer that you would give to that depends a lot on the answers to all these other questions that we haven't answered yet. So in my book, I advocate for the many worlds interpretation, and that has one kind of answer, but it's a completely different kind of answer than you would get in a different theory. When you start to dig into many worlds in the book, where you, where you start from is that Sometimes, some physicists uh, in the past have started with this classical frame yeah. and tried to explain quantum mechanics in a way that sort of sums up to, the, to that classical frame. You're talking about an approach that says, let's strip all of that away. Let's not even worry about the classical frame for a second. Let's just start at the quantum level and see, and see where that guides us. Is that right? No, that's completely right. Uh, everything is quantum in my point of view. In fact, Everett, Hugh Everett, who was the graduate student who pioneered many worlds, he originally called it the theory of the universal wave function. And what he meant by that was in the reigning interpretation called the Copenhagen interpretation, the idea was that there are quantum systems and they can, they have wave functions and they exist in superpositions of different possible measurement outcomes. But then there are observers and the observers are treated classically. The observers are big and they obey Newton's laws and so forth. And there's literally an idea called the Heisenberg cut. 
Heisenberg, uh, inventor of the uncertainty principle and so forth, drew this cut between here's the classical realm where you and I are, here's the quantum realm where little particles are. And Everett made vicious fun of this idea. He's like, well, what do you mean? Like, who draws that cut anywhere? Like, you're made of atoms and particles. The atoms and particles obey the rules of quantum mechanics. Why shouldn't you obey the rules of quantum mechanics? So in one sense, many worlds is a much simpler theory. There's no both classical world and quantum world. Everything is quantum, and that's how he explains everything. But then the question, why is there a good approximation given by classical physics, becomes much harder if you're an Everettian. Let's get to entanglement, which is a term now Now we're in Star Trek land. We're going to talk about entanglement. Uh, entanglement came first, by the way, before really? Star Trek did. Yes, 1935. So, like, this idea of, like, we're all quantum... Um, uh, everything in the in the world is quantum, but how do quantum things interact with each other? Yeah, so the, the, I actually like to lean here on Schrodinger's cat, the famous thought experiment, right? Where there's a box. Are we about to kill a cat? Uh, I have changed the experiment so that the cat is either awake or asleep, rather than alive or dead. Okay, so the idea. Thank you. Uh, I think there's a lot of cat owners in the audience that know their cat is awake and asleep at the same time. No thought experiment cats were harmed in the, in the <laughs> writing of this book. So the idea is there's something quantum going on inside a sealed box with a cat in it. And the quantum thing, like a decaying radioactive nucleus, if it happens, then it is detected by a Geiger counter and that sends gas into the box. And in Schrodinger's version, uh, it was cyanide. His, his daughter literally said, I think my father just didn't like cats. Uh, but the point of this was, I, I replaced the cyanide with sleeping gas. It works just as well as a thought experiment. But the point of it was, take the fact that the quantum system you start with, according to the rules of quantum mechanics, it's not that it did decay or didn't, you just don't know. It's that it is in a superposition of it decayed and it didn't. It really literally is both at once before you looked at it, Okay. And Schrodinger's cat amplifies that idea of a superposition up to the macroscopic world. So you say that the cat is in a superposition of being awake and asleep until you look at it, right? That's the idea. So in the Copenhagen interpretation, when you open the box, suddenly the wave function of the cat collapses and it's either awake or asleep. And that's what you see. Okay, there's a sudden change when you look at it. And Schrodinger's entire point with this was not isn't that cool, right? His entire point was, surely you don't believe this, that when you open the box, the state of the cat suddenly changes. And Everett says it doesn't need to change, just follow the rules of quantum mechanics. And what happens, and everyone agrees on this, if all you do is follow the rules of quantum mechanics and forget about collapsing and measurement and everything, but you allow you, the observer, to have a wave function, then when you look at the cat, what happens is there's part of the wave function where the cat's awake, part of it where it's asleep, and it evolves into there's part of the wave function where the cat is awake and you saw the cat awake, and there's another part of the wave function where the cat was asleep and you saw the cat asleep. And what that means is that the state of you has become entangled with the state of the cat. You can't say what your state is because it depends on what the state of the cat is. If I know the cat's awake, then I know you saw it awake and vice versa. And then the leap of genius that Everett really did was to say, and that's okay. <laughs> that both of these parts of the wave function are really there, but they go their separate ways once this happens. So we should treat them as separate versions of reality, as separate worlds. 
Is there a degree of entanglement? Like right now, are we entangled to a certain level because we're sitting here as quantum uh, components interacting with each other, but the sun is interacting with us too, but it's yeah. farther away. Is it, is it slightly less entangled? Or am I thinking, is there something to this entanglement that isn't just a binary? Uh, yes, there are certainly degrees of entanglement, and, but neither you nor I nor the sun are entangled with, with each other at all. Okay. Because entanglement does not mean you're interacting with it. It means that my quantum state depends on yours. Mm -hmm. So I'm in a superposition, and you are, but we're in a superposition that is related to each other. So the example I use uh, when I give talks about this is the Higgs boson, which is a particle we detected for the first time in 2012. Uh, it can decay into, let's say, a quark and an antiquark. And the Higgs boson <clears throat> has zero spin, but quarks do have spin. They can either be spinning clockwise or counterclockwise. So if the Higgs boson decays into two quarks, those two quarks have to be spinning in opposite directions so the total spin adds up to zero like the original Higgs boson had. But you don't know if one quark is going here, the antiquark is going the other way. You don't know what answer you're going to get if you measure the spin of one of the quarks. It could be spinning up or spinning down. But you know that if you measure one of them, the other one will be measuring the opposite way, right? So that's not like you and me and the sun. There's different things that I could measure about you, but that doesn't affect any measurement outcomes of me because we do not have quantum entanglement with each other. In fact, quantum entanglement is very fragile, and that's why it's hard to build a quantum computer. Quantum computers technologically are all about maintaining entanglement and not letting anything bumping into it and destroying it. How does this connect to the larger idea of locality that we hear so much of in quantum mechanics? And we should probably stop and say what locality is and non-locality and sure. all those fun words. We can explain our terms. We can define them if you want. But uh, this is uh, – th th let, let me back up a little bit, again, just to give some of the historical background because it's fascinating here, right? The, the first intimations of quantum mechanics came around 1900 with Max Planck and the black body radiation. And ba basically – what Planck almost said was that light is made of little discrete particles. He didn't really say that. He said that light is emitted in discrete packets of energy. And it was Einstein, five years later, who said that's because it really comes in particles, which we now call photons. But it took a long time. From 1900, it wasn't until the 1920s, the late 1920s, that we finally put quantum mechanics into its modern form. Okay, And that... That modern form is, is this Copenhagen interpretation that uh, we're all arguing about. But there's this story that by that time, Einstein was, you know, too old to really appreciate all the modern hotness with uh, quantum mechanics. He was stuffy and conservative. Really? The explanation was Einstein wasn't smart enough? He was like 48 years old. <laughs> This is what we tell ourselves now, but that story is completely false because Einstein was Einstein. He was a smart cookie. Uh, he understood quantum mechanics better than anybody. He helped invent it. And what his issue was, not that quantum mechanics was false, but that it wasn't finished yet. It wasn't complete. This story you're telling yourself about observations and measurements and wave functions collapsing can't be a fundamental theory of nature. It's just manifestly uh, a bit of ad hocery that we're using until we find the fundamental theory. So he kept thinking about it, and there were these famous series of debates between Niels Bohr and Einstein, and Bohr saying, everything's okay, don't worry about it, and Einstein saying, no, we should try to do better. And so sort of the, the last, the final salvo in these debates was in 1935, 
when Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen wrote a paper now called the EPR paper. And they said basically exactly what I said about the Higgs boson, where you can have two particles and they're emitted and they're entangled with each other, but you can let them travel as far away as you like. So you have one particle over here that is entangled with another one, and that other one could be at Alpha Centauri, right? It could be light years away. And un according to the Copenhagen interpretation, before I observe them, I don't know whether this one is spinning clockwise or counterclockwise, nor do I knew the other one. But as soon as I observe this one, and let's say I see it spin clockwise, I instantly know the other one is spinning counterclockwise. So Einstein was like, come on, guys. Like, that, that's, that's spooky to me. Like, how does it know four light years away? I'm Einstein. Nothing can go faster than the speed of light, right? This is, these are my rules. So how does that information get there? And you're able to show in quantum mechanics, you can prove theorems, that this idea of spooky action at a distance cannot actually be used to transmit information. You cannot make a quantum mechanical entanglement phone that can let you talk faster than the speed of light. But you can make experimental predictions for what the two people will see, and those experiments have been done, and quantum mechanics is right. Hmm. How does this all lead us to many worlds? Well... Again, in the normal textbook formulation, we have these two sets of rules, right? What the wave function does when you're not looking at it and what it does when you are looking at it. And all Everett says is forget about all the second set of rules. Forget about looking at it. Forget about measurement, observation, whatever. There's only one thing wave functions ever do, which is to obey the equation that Erwin Schrodinger wrote down, the Schrodinger equation, okay? And then if I open the box and I look at the cat... Schrodinger's equation is unambiguous about what happens. I and the cat together evolve into this entangled superposition. There's, there's part of the wave function where the cat was awake and I saw it awake. There's part where the cat was asleep and I saw it asleep. And Everett's brilliance was to say, let's treat those two parts of the wave function as not describing me, but I don't know what I saw, but rather describing two different copies of me who saw two different things. That's where the many worlds come from. So is it the observation that leads to the splitting? Or, like, how does that work? Splitting, because yeah, splitting happens whenever a little quantum system that is in a superposition becomes entangled with the wider world. It has nothing to do with measurement, observation, people, consciousness, agency, anything like that. It's all about entanglement. So is it really just a random event? Like, when the entanglement happens, that's when the... the world splits like i apologize i'm thinking about this completely in the context of marvel movies right now <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing random about it the schrodinger equation is completely deterministic mm -hmm. it just seems random to us because there's different copies of us and different things happen to those copies in different worlds so based on that description if it's sort of um it's happened whenever there's entanglement i would almost infer that there's like an infinite number of worlds out there there are certainly a lot of worlds out there. That's safe. We actually don't even know whether there's a finite but big number or an infinite number, okay? But you're absolutely right to think that entanglement is not this thing that, you know, happens very rarely in some physics laboratory. It's happening all the time. In a, a typical sized human body, there's a radioactive decay occurring 5,000 times a second, so every time that occurs, the very lower limit on the number of splittings of the wave function, it's not that it 
you know, so it splits 5,000 times, which doesn't make 5,000 worlds. It makes two to the power 5,000 worlds, right? Every time the world splits, it doubles. So there's a huge number of worlds being created. Rather than seeing it as some one dramatic event, think of this constant whooshing <laughs> where more and more worlds are being created in which things are slightly different in every world. This is where I stop and I, I look up because I, like, I'm trying to process just the enormity of that. So is there, has there been some calculations on like what the limit would, could be of this? Like it sounds like based on just that description, yeah. we would get to infinity pretty quickly. Like there is no limitation on this. But you're saying there is like, I'm starting to get this hint from you, some implication that there might be a finite number here. Well, there might be. We, we don't know. But, but first, let's establish if I take a number like two, mm-hmm. and I multiply it by two, I multiply it by two again and again and again, yeah. it, it gets very big very quickly. It will take you a long time to reach infinity that way, though. Yeah. Like, it will never almost happen. forever. Like, yeah. yeah, almost. <laughs> so there is an issue here where we human beings struggle, right? Because the numbers that are involved are just not part of our daily vocabulary, which goes like one, two, three, many, right? So dealing with numbers like two to the two to the 100 is outside our everyday realm of experience, and that's okay. But, but that's, this is what the math says happens. But there is this idea in the many worlds hypothesis that there is a number, possibly. Yeah, but like I said, we don't know whether it's infinity or finite. This is, mm-hmm. And that's a reflection of the fact that of this great embarrassment that we physicists have not tried nearly hard enough to understand mm-hmm. the foundations of quantum mechanics for the last hundred years. Do these worlds that split, like, uh, do they have any relationship with each other? Or yes. Are they just sort they, of separate? They're separate and gone. They're separate now, but they share a relationship in that they came from the common past, right? There is a, an arrow of time built into the branching of the wave function. There were fewer worlds in the past. There will be more in the future. And if you, if you really are bugged by the idea that we're going to run out of room for the worlds, uh, this splitting and branching... Is, is closely related, when you go through the math, to an approach to thermal equilibrium, right? An approach to uniformity and boringness and blandness. And that's what's happening in the universe. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy increases. You can start in some special state, and you become increasingly, increasingly more generic. And that's, that's the situation where all of the worlds have already been created and filled up the space of all possible worlds. I'm now, like, thinking about how much more fun entropy would have been in school if it was taught to me as just a return to boring. Yeah. Like, that's what entropy is. If you wait long enough. Yeah. There's a whole other talk to be given about how simplicity is boring Mm -hmm. and very, very low entropy states are simple. Very, very high entropy states are also simple. Complexity and interestingness only happens along the journey from low entropy to high entropy. It doesn't happen at either end. Uh, going back to the, the world branching. So they have a relationship with each other in the sense, I'm going to talk about this on biological concept, yeah. uh, in that they have a common ancestor going, That's right. going backwards. But can they have any relationship going forward? Is there a way for those worlds to interact after they branch? Nope. Cool. Sorry. That ends. Um, <laughs> Sorry, the Hollywood writers. The biological uh, metaphor is very good. In fact, Hugh Everett, when he wrote, you know, he so uh, there's so much fascinating history here. Everett's 
advisor, because everyone was a graduate student when he was doing this, his thesis advisor was John Wheeler at Princeton, who had worked with um, Niels Bohr, of all people. And Wheeler idolized Niels Bohr. And so Wheeler, on the one hand, wanted to be supportive of his student. On the other hand, he felt like he couldn't possibly say anything against Niels Bohr. So his solution in his mind was to pretend that Everett's theory really wasn't in conflict with the Copenhagen interpretation. But it manifestly was. So, uh, and Adam Becker would know this better than anyone else who just arrived here in the, in the audience. He wrote a whole book about it called What is Real? I recommend that you, you buy that book also. So there was this constant tussle back and forth between Everett trying to write his PhD thesis and graduate and Wheeler saying like, no, 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 that's too harsh. Don't say that. So one of the things that, that Everett said in his first draft was it's like an amoeba that splits, and now you have two amoebas, but they have the same memories of the, of the earlier amoeba, right? And Wheeler said, no, 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 you can't. That's just too vivid. <laughs> the people get the right idea. You can't say that. And uh, so it got erased in the published version, except that, as often happens in academic publications, when you hand in your thesis, you hand in your paper, and the editors correct it, you can sneak in little corrections in the copy editing stage. And so in a footnote in the final published version, Everett says, it's like splitting. <laughs> So this is where it gets a little mind bitty for me. In the sense, like, I can... Well, finally. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Finally. Uh, I can understand, like, looking backwards, like, the the moment of splitting and that we have different worlds. But if we never have any relationship with those worlds going forward, Mm -hmm. like, on some philosophical level, how do we know they are there? Yeah. No, that's a perfectly good question. Um, Let me parenthetically say... Most things that exist in the universe, you don't know that they're there. <laughs> like that doesn't not make really, me feel any better. Not all about you. <laughs> um, that definitely doesn't make me feel better. I'm not, <laughs> we're not here to make you feel better. That's really not what science does. So here's the point: you can explain what you mean by a measurement in quantum mechanics, etc., by following your nose and believing the equations, and that's what Everett advocates doing. And an implication of this procedure is that there exist all these extra worlds. You can't measure them. But every theory makes some predictions you can't test. That You test the, theory, the predictions you can test. If the existence of these other worlds bothers you, you can try to change the theory. You can try to change the rules so that the extra worlds go away somehow. And people have tried to do this. Mm-hmm. So for no good reason... They have added new rules to quantum mechanics to get rid of the extra worlds, to make themselves feel better about it. And, you know, knock yourself out. It's a free country. But I, I don't feel the need to do that much. I kind of relate more to quantum mechanics, knowing that somebody felt bad about it. And oh that's why God. they changed something. Yes. Uh, are there experiments we can actually do, though? Are there experiments ongoing that are actually poking at this question? Absolutely. 100%. Because the entirety, you know, the, the worlds in many worlds are not the theory. The worlds are a prediction of the theory. The axioms, the foundational elements of the theory are there's one wave function, the wave function of the universe, and it always obeys the Schrodinger equation. That's it. Everything else is derived from that. So if you want to test the theory, just ask yourself, does the wave function of the universe always obey the Schrodinger equation? Can we do an experiment that would give us different answers depending on if everything was obeying the Schrodinger equation or not? So, of course, we've done that experiment. We're still doing that experiment. And any day now, there could be a paper tomorrow that falsifies the Everett interpretation. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't hold my breath. Fair enough. Because I think it's true. 
Is there a connection between this idea of many worlds, this many worlds interpretation, and what we hear about in cosmology, which is where there's many universes? So the short answer to that is no. There's a longer answer, though. Probably we should give the longer answer. Right? Longer a answer. Sophisticated Palo Alto audience deserves the best. Um, <laughs> there's the idea of the cosmological multiverse, which is, despite the grandiose title, kind of down to earth. It just means there are places far away, further, so far that we can't see them because the speed of light is too slow for us to see them directly, where conditions are very, very different. You know, different particles, different forces, maybe even different numbers of dimensions of space, okay? And maybe the whole very, very super ultra-large-scale universe is a patchwork of different regions where things look very different. That's the cosmological multiverse. Uh, and many worlds is completely different than that. Many worlds says every time you know an atom decays in my body, there's a whole other universe right here. Uh, or, or even better to say it, it's not located anywhere. They exist in parallel and they cannot ever possibly interact with each other. Right? That's the many worlds. So it's a completely different idea. But if we are thinking hard about quantum gravity which we might want to do because gravity exists and it's the one force that hasn't really been put into the uh, framework of quantum mechanics. There's this idea called, um, so let, me, let me make this very short and as understandable as I can. What if you're an observer in cosmology uh, and you just talk about transitions between these different universes within the cosmological multiverse, right? So th there's really a different state that the universe can be in, that space-time itself can be in. It's kind of like water can be liquid or water vapor or ice. All these different universes in the cosmological multiverse, it's like space-time itself is in different phases, okay? And you can transition between them. Ice can melt, water can boil, and so forth. So if you wait long enough, plausibly, here in this room, we'll undergo a phase transition, and suddenly the laws of physics will appear different to us, and we'll all die. So let's hope this doesn't happen, but it could happen. And it's not that it definitely happens, that there's a probability that it happens, which means really, if you're an Everettian, you say the wave function branches into we're in one phase plus we're in another one. And that happens over and over and over again. And in some sense, literally here in this room, the wave function of the universe will describe a superposition of all different parts of the cosmological multiverse. There you go. I am feeling As you a whole lot of existential dread now. Um, if that's the case, which one is me? There you are. You're right there. That's it. There's When the universe branches... Mm -hmm. The people on different branches are identical copies until they see which branch they're on, but they're different people. So it's not that there is one right answer to which one is you. They all share the past that is you, and now they are all different people, and they can do different things. Just like identical twins share an egg, mm -hmm. but they're different people when they grow up. I'm going to extrapolate this out now. Yeah. Um, if this is the case, and quantum mechanics is a, is a theory that's founded on this notion of, of probability. And if we have enough branches, is, almost, is basically anything possible then? No. <laughs> I need you to add a little more. The way, well, <laughs> so many, many things happen in the wave function of the universe. But that statement is very different than everything happens. Like, the way that I like to say it is, there are, there's an infinite number of even numbers 
And none of them is an odd number, right? So what the things that happen in the Everettian multiverse are the things that are predicted by the Schrodinger equation. For example, electric charge is conserved in every single universe. You will never see a proton turn into an electron in every single universe. So it's certainly false to say that every single conceivable universe actually exists. Hmm. I don't know if that makes me feel better or worse. Not my job. <laughs> feel better. <laughs> That's a different book. <laughs> That's that quantum yoga book. Yeah, you can um, find them on Amazon. <laughs> you know. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. You brought up gravity. Why quantum I for the classical guy? (laughs) I really want to see that show. Um, You brought up gravity. Almost every quantum mechanics book that you'll read, you'll eventually get to this point in gravity, and you can feel the tone shift. Like, there's almost, like, behind the chapter, there's a general, just like a, uh, just a sigh behind it. Why is gravity such a concerning topic when it comes to quantum mechanics? Well, I think, you know, just to frame everything here, you know, we have this incredibly successful theory of physics called the core theory, which consists of the standard model of particle physics, electrons, quarks, neutrinos, and so forth, plus a set of forces, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, electromagnetism, the Higgs boson. And that standard model works perfectly well in the quantum mechanical framework. We seem to have no issues there. But the core theory also includes gravity, which is described by Einstein's general theory of relativity. And that doesn't seem to play well with quantum mechanics. Now, there's a couple things going on here. One is that gravity is special. Even before we knew that it was hard to make a quantum theory of it, we knew that gravity was special somehow. The other forces of nature live inside of space-time, whereas gravity is a feature of space-time. Gravity, according to Einstein, is the curvature of space-time itself. So when you start forgetting about gravity and taking quantum mechanical versions of the other theories, there's still a, a grounding in things like This is a location in space. Let's ask what's happening here, okay? But once you have quantum gravity, you're imagining that space-time itself can be in superpositions of different possibilities. And you can't even point to a location in space unambiguously. So things that you took for granted become conceptually harder when you move from, let's say, electromagnetism to gravity. In a weird way, are you saying, like, we don't have a location in space right now? The, the idea that you have a location in space is a convenient fiction. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Word convenient is very <laughs> important there. I'm Look, now dealing with, like, the ramifications of that. There's not quite infinite, but a lot of many me out yeah. there. But we don't have a location in space and time. Space is overrated. <laughs> Why do... Uh, why is there so much of a focus on black holes when it comes to quantum mechanics? Like, I hear any time we talk about yeah. quantum mechanics, 
I, I can only like I think Leonard Sutskind is just going to show up if I mention yep, this he word. Might. But like um, you invoked him, I invoked him. He'll just appear. Um, but why are black holes such an area that we focus on when it comes to talking about gravity in the context of quantum mechanics? Yeah, I think this is the perfect question to ask because I, I, I fibbed a little bit when I said, you know, the core theory has standard model of particle physics and gravity and gravity is not quantized. We have a perfectly good quantum mechanical theory of gravity as long as we restrict ourselves to conditions where gravity is very weak. Like, we can use quantum gravity to predict that the Earth moves around the sun obeying Kepler's laws. That's no problem. Where quantum gravity, as we currently understand it, doesn't work is where gravity becomes strong, like at the Big Bang or in a black hole, okay? So, sadly, we don't have a lot of experimental evidence about how quantum gravity is working near black holes, but we do have thought experiments. Essentially, Stephen Hawking in the 1940s told us this miraculous fact that black holes have an entropy, they have a temperature, they give off radiation. These are all predictions of what you get by combining quantum mechanics with gravity. And all of the hints from that, so you try to understand your thought experiment as carefully as you can, not quite as good as a real experiment, but it's what we got. What the black hole thought experiments seem to be telling us is that Unlike everything else, every other force of nature, you can't think of gravity as a bunch of things with locations in space, right? If you think about quantum field, you think about the electromagnetic field, at every point in space, there's an electric field that is oscillating in some direction, a magnetic field, etc. But gravity is not like that. It doesn't have this locality feature. There are things about quantum gravity that seem to be intrinsically non-local. And this is... this helps explain the fact that it's been hard to take general relativity and quantize it because general relativity is a perfectly local theory. And by local, what I mean is if I poke something right here, the changes that I make in the universe ripple out at the speed of light or slower. So this affects something right next to it, affects something right next to it, etc. But there's something that spreads out right away in gravity that is, that is weird. And we don't understand that, but it's a hint that we shouldn't find quantum gravity by taking general relativity and quantizing it. Uh, so, like, you're suggesting that we need to stay at the, the basic nature of what quantum mechanics is telling us and try to go follow that, um, that theory until we find, maybe, in another world, potentially, um, something that sums to what we're seeing in the, uh, when we... It, uh, look at gravity. Is that yeah. right? No, that's exactly right. And I think that uh, in some sense we've been spoiled because we got lucky. Like when we take electromagnetism or particles or whatever to make this very successful standard model of particle physics, we always start with a classical theory and then we quantize it. Mm -hmm. We start with something that didn't know about quantum mechanics and we add quantum mechanics to it. But presumably that's not how nature works, right? Presumably nature just is quantum mechanical from the start. And rather than asking how to get a quantum theory by starting with a classical theory and adding quantum mechanics, we should start with a quantum theory and find a limit, an approximation where things look classical. That was one of the first questions you asked. So my idea, my suggestion is that this is not only a good idea, but is necessary when we come to gravity. That to find a quantum theory of gravity, don't quantize gravity, find gravity within quantum mechanics. Do we expect anything in the way that you talked about the um, a proton can't turn into an electron? There's certain things that are going to be conserved in each of the ones. Is there something like that with gravity too that we or that we suspect or that we're testing? 
Well, what we know is the is the huge success of general relativity in the classical regime, right? So we know that space-time is curved. We know that space is three-dimensional. Time is one-dimensional. We know there are gravitational waves and there are black holes. And there was a big bang. So in some sense, we have a lot of information that we can really take, make use of. We also know a lot about how quantum field theory works, right? We know that the world is not made of particles at a fundamental level. It's made of fields. And these fields are entangled with each other in very specific ways. So hopefully we can fit it all together into a story that, at the end of the day, resembles the world we see. Mm-hmm. There is a term that uh, has been thrown about, a super observer. Uh, what, does that, what does that mean? Versus... Uh, that could mean different things. Where, who's been thrown around this term? Oh, I'm asking a question from the audience. Oh, so it, uh, <laughs> so um, uh, there's at least two different senses in which uh, I've heard this term. One is, you know, we live in the wave function of the universe, but as we've been saying, the wave function branches, and now I live on one branch but not the other. So we can always imagine the ability to ob- to observe all the branches of the wave function at once, although literally no creature in the universe can do that. So if you imagine that kind of super observer, then they'd be able to see the whole wave function. There is also, there's a, it's, probably not related to that, but there's an even weirder idea called superdeterminism, which tries to get around some of the weird correlations and spooky actions at a distance by saying, not only are the experimental results baked into the initial conditions of the universe, but which experiments you choose to do were already baked into the initial conditions of the universe. And that's why you think that quantum mechanics is correctly describing what's going on, even though everything is perfectly determined. Another existential crisis happening now. Um, (laughs) I knew you would say that. (laughs) One thing I'm sort of noting as we keep going along, and we're talking about these historical figures that are involved uh, in this conversation, whether we're talking about Niels Bohr, Einstein, that's 100 years ago, these figures. Even when we're talking about Everett, we're still decades, decades old. Yeah. Like, where is the? Who are the names that we should be, that we should know now? That are really pushing this forward, or where is this this theory kind of being uh, tested? Because I like every name that comes up in each of these books is still from the 1940s at earliest, excepting like the author of the book. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you know that this is a very good question, and again, it. it relates to the fact that the community of physicists chose to ignore this entire field. So there might have been one or two people per decade that were really pushing things forward. Um, in the 50s, there was Hugh Everett. There was also David Bohm, who mm-hmm. came up with a wonderful version of hidden variables theories. In the 1960s, there was John Bell, who proved some theorems about how spooky action at a distance manifests itself experimentally. In the 70s, there were people who, the first experimenters who really started taking seriously these crazy predictions of non-locality and quantum mechanics and so forth. And there were also, there was this idea of what we call decoherence, which is really the physical way that branches of the wave function split. So it's, it's in some sense lucky that Everett was able to guess that in the 1950s because the mechanism for it happening wasn't explored until the 70s with people like Hans-Dieter Zay, who recently passed away, Wojtek Zurek, and other people. Um, and then there's been, like, I would say since the early 
early 80s, it's been gradually getting okay again to think about these issues. There's been a lot of philosophers who've done tremendous work. David Wallace is a, a young guy who is probably the leading thinker on the many worlds interpretation alive today. Uh, people like David Albert and Tim Maudlin uh, have really been criticizing the Everett interpretation in, in very straightforward ways. When you say a small community, like how, like how many people are we really talking about? Fewer really than this, push? right? I mean, it's a small community. It, it depends, always depends on where you draw the boundaries, right? So there's plenty of people who in some sense are involved in the foundations of quantum mechanics as experimenters, let's say, right? Like they're trying to prevent decoherence happening from a, you know, in a, in a small sample, or they're trying to test Bell's theorem in some way. Um, the number of theorists who are trying to actually, you know, ex explicate the, the workings out of these different models, um, it's pretty small. I don't know, a hundred people. Adam, what would you say? Is that about right? Hundred people? Yeah. Um, compared to like a typical meeting in particle physics, has ten thousand, twenty thousand people at it. So it's a very big deal. Wow, that scale is surprising to me on some level. Like yeah. since this is such a fundamental issue about just the nature of reality and the and the entire um, foundation of physics. Yeah, it's uh, like it's. <laughs> We have been squelching this discussion. When, you know, even today, um, like I said, that you know, it's become more respectable to talk about these issues. But even today, you know, I'm a research professor at Caltech. We apply for grants. You know, we write up what is the work we've done in the last few years. I am told by well-meaning senior colleagues, don't let anyone know you're working on the foundations of quantum mechanics. That will make you look less serious. You will never get funding for doing that. Wow. Uh, I want to transition to something else, which is how, something we started at, which is how quantum mechanics is interpreted by the non-expert and how mm. it's used in popular culture, how it's used generally speaking. And before we get into some examples of that, I want to just gauge how do you feel when you see quantum mechanics used in a Marvel film? Like it's in Ant-Man. We see yeah. quantum realm. And I believe one of your colleagues stuck it there. Yes, it wasn't, it was. That wasn't by accident. No. But like, is your sense of how quantum mechanics is interpreted by the larger population consistent with where with, with what you would hope it would be? Yeah, I think this is a situation where, believe it or not, you should actually be nuanced about these things. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a difference between not getting the details of quantum mechanics right and abusing quantum mechanics, okay? I think that, you know, in Ant-Man, having a quantum realm, having a multiverse, things like that, I am fine with that. Like, it's a movie about Ant-Man, okay? It's, like, <laughs> it's not really... When Thor uses a wormhole to travel from Asgard to the Earth, it's not really bothering me. He's carrying a big hammer and calls down lightning. <laughs> So it's not like pretending to be anywhere near serious. But something like the movie What the Bleep Do We Know is just damaging because that is purporting to explain features of reality based on quantum mechanics in ways that are completely nonsensical. Like, I can bring reality into existence by thinking about it in the right way. That's not what quantum mechanics says, and I think that's much more damaging. So when you go on Amazon and you search quantum and you actually look for stuff that has some sort of science basis, one of the words that often comes up is consciousness. Yeah. And how, so how do you feel about when quantum mechanics is, uh, gets entangled with consciousness? Ah, I see yeah. what you did there. Look at that. Um, 
you know, it, it used to be the most logical thing in the world to think that because we had this Copenhagen interpretation, which was sort of the best we could do. And right there in the rules are words like measure and observe, which we associate with conscious creatures doing the measuring and observing. So very respectable people, most notably uh, Eugene Wigner, who was a Nobel Prize winning physicist, you know, went there. He said, like, look, maybe consciousness is, cru- is really crucial in understanding quantum mechanics. Even Wigner later changed his mind. He said, sorry, I should not have said that. It's been misused. Um, there are still people who think there's a relationship, uh, people like Roger Penrose, who's pretty darn good at being a physicist. But we have such good, compelling, attractive, mechanistic, physical versions of quantum mechanics today that we didn't have in the 50s and 60s. There's sort of no longer an excuse for that. And I think that within the physics community, it's petered out to almost nothing. It's a few figures who are still pushing it, but like in most physics departments, there's nobody who thinks that consciousness has anything to do with quantum mechanics. And what do you look for when you're looking for something that takes this question of quantum mechanics seriously uh, when it comes to all of these things? Because I understand what you say about Ant-Man. Like, it, yeah. it has no bearing, but there's places all in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think because we've done such a bad job at explaining quantum mechanics and because both physicists and science writers have taken advantage of the mysterious aspect to sort of make it sound even more mysterious because that's mm-hmm. what, you know. I, I once made a joke. That, have you seen the Twitter account called In Mice? Where no. basically, yes, this Twitter account looks for studies that were done <laughs> on mice that were hyped in newspaper headlines as like, you know, you cancer could be cured by walking two miles a day, right? But the study only looked at mice. So the Twitter account just retweets the headline adding the words in mice to everything, okay? So I wanted to have, I'm too lazy to do this, but I want to start a Twitter account called as predicted by the Schrodinger equation. (laughs) And it will look for popular news headlines saying, you know, weird mind-bending consequences of quantum mechanics discovered as predicted by the Schrodinger equation, right? So every experiment we've ever done in the quantum realm has always turned up answers that are perfectly 100% consistent with the Schrodinger equation. So there's an equation there. It's not magic. It's not mystery. You've got to obey the equation. So if, if someone is truly purporting to get implications of, about quantum mechanics for our everyday lives... I want to know, is it in accordance with the Schrodinger equation, or are you just kind of talking about stuff? Mm. So two questions. Um, one is, uh, is the current state of research really pushing at trying to confirm whether we're in alignment with Schrodinger's equation, or actually trying to push new ground and throwing out completely new ideas that don't just um, uh, posit that we need to test whether Schrodinger's equation is the the correct sort of uh, estimation of the wave function. Yeah, you know, both are happening, actually. Um, you know, I am a big fan of the many worlds uh, formulation of quantum mechanics, and I suspect that now that my book has been published, within a year or two, everyone else will agree with me. That's... <laughs> 
That's usually how it works, yeah. right? I, I, as I understand it. Uh, but meanwhile, there are uh, plenty of people, you know, the philosophers of science, uh, I should say this very clearly, philosophers of science have been much more respectable than physicists have about facing up to the difficulties of understanding quantum mechanics. They've been worrying about these foundational issues at a much more serious level than the physicists have. The physicists have been shut up and calculate, don't bug me about this, and the philosophers have been trying to understand it. That's the good news. The bad news is they, they, as David Wallace, who's a proponent of many worlds, put it, like, when faced with a conundrum in the philosophy of physics, the philosophers will always say, what we need here is better physics. And what the physicists always say is, what we need here is better philosophy, right? So what the philosophers are very willing to do is to change the laws of physics to interpret quantum mechanics, to add new variables or change Schrodinger's equation or whatever. Whereas the physicists are like, no, 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 I'm pretty sure that Schrodinger's equation is it, so we need to understand what's going on better. And that sort of makes them much more sympathetic to many worlds than to things like hidden variable theories or spontaneous collapse theories. I I find that incredibly heartening. As somebody that's worked in academia, and beyond like philosophers of science like we can they go by many different names depending on the field oftentimes are small and marginalized and off to the side but to be taken seriously here uh in the way they're taking the 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 topic seriously i find actually really exciting well half of the philosophers of science working in this area have phds in physics not in philosophy and then instantly realized that what they cared about would never get them a job in a physics department compatible with what we've been saying and so they they were able to get jobs in philosophy departments and the it doesn't it's there is no difference Mm -hmm. the thing being done is trying to understand nature it doesn't matter whether you call it philosophy or call it physics right it's just that there is academic siloing there 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 are different ways of putting people in boxes and we want to put you in one box or the other and if you say well i don't really quite belong in the box then they say well you will really not get a job (laughs) So I guess the question isn't what's inside the box anymore. Um, that's a Schrodinger joke. I, know, I thought it, that would do well. I, I really thought that would do well. Light silence is yeah. always, you know. Um, an astute audience member has noted, like, one of the words that we've used a lot tonight is the word understand. Yeah. And in this context, um, they ask, what does it mean to understand this? Because, like, understanding is is is, is this vague term itself. Like, sure. You know, I think that you can have different levels of uh, insistence on what it really means to understand, like, you know, um, gravity. We have general relativity. There's curved space-time. There's an equation. It's tested experimentally. But it's very easy to say, yeah, but do you really understand gravity, man, you know? And I'm like, yes, there's the equation, and I made the predictions, and it's all working out. So, like, the simplest, when I say understand quantum mechanics, I don't mean, like, grasp it in my interior bones or anything. I mean, I want to know what the equation is and what the quantities are so that I can say what happened. That's all that I want. I'm going to uh, create another world here where you're the grand vizier of all of physics, and you can set up some experiment that you want to do that really pokes at this question. Is there something out there that you feel like, if we're going to really try to poke at this in a more aggressive way, what is that experiment or what is that sort of structure that you would put in place? I think we don't quite 
have it yet because, again, the theory has been lagging so far behind. I think that this idea that I mentioned before that somehow gravity will emerge out of quantum mechanics and also this open question that we talked about, are there an infinite number of worlds or just a finite number? You know, the different possibilities here come down in different ways that might lead to different experimental predictions. But we just haven't put the brain power in, put in the working hours to figure out what those predictions are. So, you know, as much as I think that most progress in physics is driven by experiments and discoveries, the people who are lagging behind right now are the theorists. They haven't made the right predictions for the experimenters to go out and look for. And this is hard to say given the nature of the topic, but do you feel like progress is being made right now on that front, even though there isn't enough, as you say, enough people doing this? Or yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely do. And, um, and as very often happens in physics, part of it is just from technology. Like, you, you used to be able to draw this cut a la Heisenberg, between the classical world and the quantum world, and that was fine. Like, quantum things were one or two or five particles. Classical things were 10 to the 25 particles. And But now we can do quantum things with 10 or 100 or 1,000 particles where there's sort of a fuzzy boundary between the quantum realm and the classical realm, and suddenly you have to think harder about what quantum mechanics is really saying. So I think that in part... The, the, the drive to make a quantum computer has made it slightly more respectable to think about the foundations of physics. So I think that philosophers have been pushing it and they've been doing it better. Physicists are beginning to catch on. So, I, you know, I'm optimistic. We're going to do some rapid-fire questions, which is always concerning when it comes to quantum mechanics. I don't know what that means. Um, but an audience member asks, seems like many worlds and block universe, which I don't know what that is, are contradictory. Two events split the multiverse into four universes, but relativity says the order of events can be different for different observers. So which many world split happens first? So, uh, and are we in a chicken and egg conversation right now? <laughs> no, I mean, am I supposed to give a short answer to this, or can no, I give the right answer to this? <laughs> the right I mean, yeah, okay, the right answer. Um, you're right, anonymous uh, questioner from the audience. There's absolutely a tension at face value between the idea that if I do a quantum experiment here, it splits the universe into two everywhere throughout the universe simultaneously. And relativity, which says there's no such thing as, quote, everywhere in the universe simultaneously, right? That, that notion depends on your frame of reference. However, the idea of a branching of the wave function is not built into the laws of physics. It is a human convenience. It is an emergent phenomenon. Just like tables and chairs are not built into the laws of physics, but we find them very convenient to talk about. They give us a handle on what's going on that we can use to describe things. So I know this is an unsatisfying answer. Uh, I discuss it in greater detail in the book, but how you slice up the universe into different branches is up to you. Whatever floats your boat. So the, the answer, which branching event happens first, the answer is it doesn't matter. You, either way is fine. The predictions for every single experimental prediction you're going to make will turn out to be exactly the same. How do you deal with conservation of energy during the splits? Yeah. So this is a great question because it's a, it's a place where many worlds is clearly better than the Copenhagen interpretation. Um, many worlds says the only thing that ever happens is the wave function of the universe obeys the Schrodinger equation. The Schrodinger equation conserves energy perfectly. That's kind of what its job is. And so energy is conserved. That's it. 
Um, now, I know that's not really satisfying because you say, but I make a whole other universe and there's energy in the universe. Where did it come from? The answer is that even though you can't see it, every universe is getting thinner. Every universe is getting skinnier. So there's an amount of universe built in. And rather than thinking of the universe duplicating, you should think of it being subdivided into many different copies. And the copies start out very similar looking, but slightly different because they're on different branches. And they can differentiate over time, but there's less and less of them. So there's a related question. Forgetting about con So energy is still conserved even though you're making new universes because you're dividing the existing universe in half. There's a related question. Forget about energy. What about utility? What about happiness? Like if you're utilitarian and you think that you know, the total happiness or pleasure or utility of the people in the world is a positive number, wouldn't the most moral thing you could possibly do be to branch the wave function of the universe as fast as you can to make more people and increase the utility of the universe? No, because no one would know you were doing that. And that's because even though you're making more and more universes, they're in some sense smaller and smaller and contribute less to the total utility. Same story for energy. There's a lot of things I imagine talking about tonight in respect to a wave function, but morality was not one of them. <laughs> you know, it's not, I think it's true that knowing that there are many other copies of you that started from a similar past and are different now, um, it would be the most natural thing in the world to think that that should somehow affect your life, that it should change how you should behave. I think the answer is no, it doesn't change how you behave, but it's a perfectly good question to ask. Like, you wouldn't be surprised, really. Uh, one more audience question, which is, Schrodinger's equation causes the wave function to evolve smoothly, but splitting world sounds discontinuous. What gives? Yeah, what gives is it's a good approximation, right? Everything is very, very smooth. It's exactly right. But the time scale in which decoherence happens, decoherence being this entanglement process between a tiny subatomic thing and the wider environment, is about 10 to the minus 21 seconds, okay? A zeptosecond, which is a really short period of time. So it happens so fast that it's way faster than any possible thing going on in your brain, right? Faster than any neurochemical process that can let you be uh, aware of it. So for all intents and purposes, to our experience, wave functions branch instantaneously, but it's just an approximation. So I want to conclude by talking about how you've invested much of your career, I would say even most of your career, to talking about quantum mechanics as much as you are exploring quantum mechanics. Uh, and there's this, this history with quantum mechanics of of it being interpreted as uh as uh complicated and elite and only the people that understand it don't really understand it um like all the quotes from Feynman that we go through but you're you seem to be on this quest to say no it doesn't have to be that way why why is that so important for us to Share, like talk about quantum mechanics in a way that everyone understands when it's such a technical, frankly, incomplete idea right now. Well, I think it's true 
That's why I think it's important. You know, I think that quantum mechanics is intelligible. I think the universe is intelligible. I think we're making progress toward doing it. I think the rate at which progress is made depends on how invested we are in making it. I think that physicists have been in denial about the possibility of making quantum mechanics into a fully understandable theory. Um, but also, you know, I think about my place in the ecosystem, academic, intellectual, scholarly ecosystem. The kind of research I do for a living is never going to make a better smartphone. It's never going to cure malaria, right? It's never going to get us to the moon. The only reason to do and to support the kind of research I do is because of basic fundamental human curiosity. We want to know about ourselves, about the world we live in, about how they're related. And so I am privileged enough to get to do that for a living, but to do that and to be supported by the rest of the world in my quest to do that, and then to not tell anybody what we figured out seems absurd to me. I appreciate that you found that absurd because it means that we get to enjoy the uh, the fruits of your labor. Um, one, I want to close with a quote, and it's a Niels Bohr quote, which is, we must be clear that when it comes to atoms, language can be used only as in poetry. I know what he intended to mean by that, but to me, what it, what it, uh, it reminds me of is that uh, talking about this, explaining quantum mechanics is an art. And I appreciate how much time you've put into becoming an artist as much as a scientist. Please join me in thanking Sean Carroll. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed today's program brought to you by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley and by Wonderfest, the Bay Area Beacon of Science. Again, we would like to thank Sean Carroll, author of Something Deeply Hidden, our moderator, Kishore Hari, our audience here in Palo Alto, and those of you joining us on the radio and by podcast. And now, this meeting is formally adjourned. Gavel. We got the Thanks. Thanks a lot. That was a lot of fun.